Faith Sanctuary, inviting visitors from around the world to experience the power and the sanctity of Mark Rothko's monumental paintings. Our mission is to create opportunities for spiritual growth and dialogue that illuminates our shared humanity and inspire action leading to a world in which all are treated with dignity and respect. For the last 50 years, the Rothko Chapel has lived out its vocation by opening its doors to the public every day of the year, providing a quiet place for reflection and renewal, hosting private services for faith communities, presenting programs at the intersection of art, spirituality, and human rights, and rallying around significant human rights issues of the day by way of symposia and human rights awards. Tonight, we have the honor of hearing from art historian and Rothko Chapel scholar Sheldon Nodelman. He will speak about Mark Rothko's artistic process of creating the chapel and share some insights into why this work of art is so significant. In 1975, Sheldon was invited to write the essay for the exhibition Martin Novros Rothko, Paintings in the Age of Actuality, which was presented at Rice University Institute for the Arts. During his visit to Houston for the project, he encountered the Rothko Chapel for the first time. He shared with me recently that upon entering this place, he was astonished, aware that what he was seeing and encountering was tremendous, but he was lacking the critical equipment required to answer the needs of the work. He could not explain it. And for someone whose entire career had, built, had been built on understanding and articulating works of art, this was very frustrating. So it was during the same visit to Houston that he told Dominique Domenil that he was interested in writing about the chapel. And this led to a journey that spanned almost two decades, resulting in the seminal publication, Rothko Chapel Paintings, Origins, Structure, Meaning. Tonight's program will explore not only Sheldon's previous scholarship, but also some new evidence regarding the Rothko design and creative process that allows us to more fully understand his achievement. We'll begin with words of introduction by Christopher Rothko. This will be followed by a lecture by Sheldon, and afterwards they will engage in a conversation. You're invited to email any questions that you have during the lecture to programs at rothkochapel.org.
and Christopher will do his best to weave them into the conversation. This email address is also listed on the Vimeo page. Note that English closed captioning is available tonight, and you can turn this on by clicking the CC button on the bottom of the video player and select English. So now for a short introduction to tonight's moderator. Christopher Rothko, the second of Mark and Mary Alice Rothko's two children, is a psychologist, a writer, and for the last 30 years, the custodian of the Rothko legacy. He is editor of his father's book of philosophical writings, The Artist's Reality. His book of essays, Mark Rothko, From the Inside Out, was published in 2015 from Yale University Press. Dr. Rothko has helped prepare more than two dozen exhibitions at museums and galleries around the globe. He is past chair of the Rothko Chapel Board and is currently head of the Opening Spaces Project, guiding the restoration of the chapel and enhancement of its campus. Welcome, Christopher, and thank you for being here tonight. Ashley, I'm, I'm very excited to, to be speaking with Professor Nodelman tonight. Uh, I've gotten to know Professor Nodelman over the years, uh, and uh, first as the author of this definitive study of the Rothko Chapel, some 400 pages examining every possible aspect, starting with the commission, the Demeniel's philosophical and theological thinking behind it, and the historical examples that led to their conception of a chapel. That leading into their choice of my father to execute that vision, and my father in turn his own thoughts his own philosophical uh, musings as he as he explored uh, the many possibilities that he could undertake to to bring this chapel to fruition. So he explores the architectural history and also the uh, artistic history that informed uh, my father and the Demoniles uh, thinking that went behind this and then proceeds to look at the, the building and the works themselves down in, in tremendous detail, as we will hear tonight, actually down to the microns of their, of their measures. So uh, when I actually did finally meet the man behind this book, uh, I, was, uh, I was not sure what to expect, given that uh, he, he probably had uh, thought more about the Rothko Chapel than, uh, than uh, all the other people I had ever met combined. <laughs> uh, and I'd met him a few times, and most recently um, at this uh, wonderful retreat center in the, um, in the south of France called Les Tres, which um, coincidentally in this, in this, uh, in this case, is act was actually founded by uh, Dominique Demenil's sister, Angelo Berger. And I say coincidentally because it was uh, not, this talk was not um, organized by either the Rothko Chapel or the Menil Foundation, but it was not so coincidental because I think this center that is a retreat, which is really specifically to, uh, to promote scholarship, it, it speaks to how central scholarship is to, to that family and to uh, the thinking that went into uh, both the Rothko Chapel and uh, so many, the Menil Collection and many of the other uh, pieces that uh, make up the Menil Foundation. Uh, that that uh, that uh, several days I spent with uh, Professor Nodelman were really tremendously rewarding, and I had expected, given that he had written uh, some 400 pages on the chapel, that he would simply lecture the rest of us uh, about about the meaning of the chapel. But in fact, I found a tremendously flexible thinker eager to share his ideas, but equally eager to learn from everyone else. And it led to wonderful conversations that I am looking forward to uh, continuing tonight, and I think we will all benefit from. Uh, 
So let me tell you just uh, a bit about uh, Sheldon Nodelman. He is Emeritus Professor of the History of Art at the University of California, San Diego. He received his BA, his MA, and his PhD degree from Yale University. Before joining the visual arts faculty at UCSD, he taught at Bryn Mawr College, Princeton University, and Yale. His research fields include classical Greek and Roman art, especially Roman sculpted portraiture, the 12th century avant-garde, I'm sorry, 20th century avant-garde, and art historical theory and method. Prominent among his published works is the major critical study so, uh, so far of the Rothko Chapel paintings. He's currently pursuing two parallel investigations of the work of Marcel Duchamp. With that, Sheldon, I will turn it over to you. We are looking forward to hearing what you have to share with us this evening. Thanks, Christopher, for those very kind words. Uh, and uh, let, me, let me begin uh, by telling our viewers uh, that uh, even though I'm standing here in the Rothko Chapel itself, uh, you won't be seeing the Rothko Chapel directly as I am. You're going to be seeing images of it, photographic images of it. Uh, and I have to start by saying, first of all, that you can't photograph the Rothko Chapel Photographic images, uh, uh, the camera eye uh, does not uh, uh, replace the human eye. It doesn't replace the human eye, which is embodied uh, in, uh, in, in a human body, which itself is the host to the human mind. And all of these require to be directly present uh, in an environment uh, which, uh, which requires uh, the embodied spectator, the moving spectator, the temporal dimension of experience as it extends between past, present, and future, as it, as it depends upon memory and expectation, uh, and, and the entire gamut of psychophysical behaviors of which a human being is capable, those are all entailed in the view of every work of art, but the chapel itself is stru so structured as to make these requirements uh, indispensable uh, and foreground them in a way that scarcely any other work of art that I know does. That's part of its, uh, of its greatness. Uh, so I'll be showing you a series of photographs, but don't think that you're seeing the chapel. For that, you have to come here, and I hope you do, uh, to see it for yourself. Now, some of you uh, will be very familiar with the Rothko Chapel. Others, not so much. Some of you have seen, seen it here uh, years or maybe many years before. So very quickly, I'm going to uh, rehearse uh, some of its fundamental conditions uh, uh, for you before uh, entering into the, uh, uh, the body of what I have to say. Uh, let me say, first of all, that uh, the 50th anniversary of the uh, of the opening of the chapel, which we're observing uh, in this season, is also, uh, by coincidence, the 25th anniversary of the publication of my book, about which you've, you've heard. Uh, so uh, for me, this is an experience of revisiting a, a familiar, or once familiar scene, uh, and looking at it with eyes that have been, uh, been um, chastened uh, by experience, uh, as, uh, as, uh, as time and age do for all of us, uh, and uh, presenting a slightly, a slightly modified view of the ones that I expressed at some length uh, uh, 25 years before. This is a revisiting 
of the Rothko Chapel on my part, and it will involve a re re uh, reframing uh, certain issues that I have previously discussed. Uh, let's start um, with the fundamental conditions of, uh, of viewing uh, of the chapel. It begins with the plan itself. The chapel is an octagon in plan uh, with four long sides uh, and four short sides on the angles uh, and one long side recessed in the form of an apse. Uh, and eight pictorial units are disposed around those eight walls And our experience of them uh, will, de will depend uh, profoundly on a number of variable conditions which are grounded in our immediate presence in the chapel. One is the physical presence of the viewer standing, usually, uh, feeling the effect of gravity on his or her body, uh, changing view as, as one moves, uh, first the changing focus of the eye, then the movement of the body back and forth at various distances in response to solicitations that are, that are being projected by the painting itself. The painting tells us how it wishes to be seen uh, and we follow it as best we can. Uh, uh, but because of the, the angled walls, the obliquely angled walls, uh, it's impossible to have a single uninterrupted focused view of any of these paintings. Uh, Every one involves, by the time you can, uh, you can see it as a whole unit, you get far enough away to do that, uh, you are necessarily involved in peripheral views of its neighbors to left and right. So you see no painting alone. Everyone is conditioned by its, by its neighbors. And we all know that visual experience, like all sensory experience, or all experience plain, to court, uh, is conditioned uh, by contrast, by contrast with what has preceded it and by expectation of what may follow it. Uh, so what we see is conditioned by what is, uh, what is adjacent to it. Uh, and as we move following solicitations that carry us around, uh, around the chapel space, uh, that continuously changes. And eventually, of course, we come back to where we started. We revisit our, our point of departure. Uh, and we're now experiencing uh, that whole cycle again. But it, it's not the same cycle anymore because it's been conditioned by our previous experience of it. Uh, and yet each return uh, will be a return to a different place. Uh, you can't go home again. Uh, certainly you can't do that in the chapel because you, you cannot see it, uh, no, no single element of it, in the same way, in the same frame of mind, with the same habits of expectation, in the same sensory conditioning that you did before. Uh, among these factors, among the factors that, uh, that continuously alter, uh, uh, very importantly, is the light. Uh, the chapel is, is lit by a single uh, opening, an oculus, uh, in, in, this, in the center of the roof. Uh, it emits natural light. Uh, Rothko 
wanted natural light. He didn't. He distrusted artificial light. He wanted natural light with all its changes. And the light here changes continuously with the sun moving through the sky, with clouds covering or sometimes even entirely covering it. Uh, so light's never the same from moment to moment. And, that, and new aspects uh, of, the, of the painting you're looking at or the paintings uh, is continuously revealed. They, they reveal themselves uh, to the eye as the light changes. Uh, so all of these conditioning factors uh, uh, make uh, any static view uh, 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 impossible to attain and, uh, and utterly fail to, to, to uh, condition uh, to, or, or, or to reveal the, the richness uh, of any single work and of the total collective work, which is the chapel. You can't see any one of these paintings alone. They all condition all the others. And the, and the space in which they're immersed conditions them all. Uh, so I'm going to show you now a, 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 just a, a, a brief run-through of the, of the um, ensemble of the chapel paintings to remind you of them for those who haven't, uh, who haven't seen them recently. Uh, and uh, that will be the, 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 the stage setting uh, for some remarks about uh, uh, changing views uh, that I, that uh, uh, that uh, I have come to hold uh, uh, about the project itself. So let's begin with all, with all of the cautions I've just uh, expressed about the unreliability uh, of the photographic medium to convey the experience. Uh, just to remind you, or to uh, of your experience, or encourage you to renew it. Uh, let's have a look. Uh, at the chapel. Right now we are standing uh, in front of the, uh, of the uh, panel on the entrance wall, uh, looking toward the, the uh, triptych, which occupies the apse. Uh, there's a close-up of the triptych flanked by uh, two uh, large monochromes to either side of it on the, on the flanking angle walls. Uh, here's a close-up of that triptych. Uh, with the uh, central panel, you can't see it very well in this in this photograph, but the central panel lighter in color than the two flanking ones, and wider also uh, than the two flanking ones, so that its centrality, its central role, is uh, is emphasized. Uh, and directly opposite uh, is uh, is the uh, the great uh, elongated panel uh, on the entrance wall. Uh, which is directly aligned with the central panel of that triptych. It's, it's exactly the same dimensions. It's exactly aligned with it. Uh, and the two of them uh, uh, jointly form the spine, the axis, the main axis uh, of the ensemble. And here's a flanking view uh, uh, in, in which you can see the, uh, uh, that, that, uh, that, uh, entrance wall panel, looking distorted, looking much wider uh, uh, than it really is, uh, uh, and then uh, an angle wall panel, and then a triptych, uh, which, which occupies one of the long walls of, uh, on, the, on the side of the, on either side of the main axis, the east and west walls. And we'll come back to these, these triptychs. There's another one on the other side, uh, 
which play a central role, as we'll be seeing, uh, in, the, uh, in the functioning uh, of the ensemble uh, uh, in, a, uh, in a fashion that uh, uh, has yet to be fully validated uh, by the present installation. I'll come back to that point uh, as we come toward the end. There's a, there's a view of one of those triptychs surrounded by uh, two of the great wide monochromes occupying the angle walls. And here's the other one on the other side uh, in a similar situation, but with uh, a view uh, toward the, uh, the apse triptych uh, over on our right-hand side. Uh, and here's a view, a close-up view, of the angle wall, or I should say of the south wall painting, the entrance wall painting, uh, with its uh, great uh, uh, black panel uh, uh, occupying the, uh, uh, a, a, a dramatic view uh, of uh, a, a, a dramatic role in the, uh, in the, uh, the, the action the dramaturgy uh, of the painting as a whole at that opposite side. Now, these paintings uh, are drastically different uh, from traditional Rothko paintings, so the kind he'd been doing uh, almost interruptedly from 1949 forward, uh, and which he would continue to do after he included the chapel program. And this is a typical example of uh, one of those paintings. And you can see that it's, um, even though we are accustomed to calling these paintings abstract, they're actually uh, uh, full of action, uh, full of event. Uh, the, the forms are complex uh, and ir they're irregular. Uh, they emerge out of, uh, out of uh, what seems to be a kind of inner depth uh, and jostle with each other uh, for, for terrain uh, on the pictorial surface and against the edges of the painting. Uh, they are full of a sense of process, uh, a sense of which may be geologic process, it may be organic life. Uh, all these, uh, all these uh, allusions are, are, are embedded in it. But there is a rich vocabulary of things going on. Uh, and these are banished uh, to, uh, to all uh, immediate perception uh, in the paintings for the chapel, uh, which are radically abstract in a way which Rothko had never uh, undertaken before. And it may be, it may be, uh, and I actually believe it is, a response on Rothko's part uh, to the second commandment uh, in which there shall be no graven images uh, and, and especially not any in a sacred space such as this, uh, this was destined to be in which the presence of God in the form of the Eucharist was, was held to be uh, directly evident to the believer, directly offered to the believer. Uh, and I think in Rothko's mind uh, uh, may well have been the story uh, uh, from the siege of Jerusalem in 70 AD when the Roman soldiers break into the Holy of Holies of the temple and they find it empty. They're astonished to find it empty because God does not, it cannot be 
represented. Uh, this absence of traditional or normal representation, however, is also one of the principal means of, uh, of, of, of structure uh, in the chapel paintings. Uh, and in the kind of relationship that the, chap that the chapel paintings entertain with the viewer. Because unlike in almost all representational art, which are familiar, uh, whether, it, whether it's uh, abstract, so-called, or not, uh, the painting is full of events, uh, full of, of events within it, its, its physical limits that provide a series of clues for the viewer who can, uh, who can uh, follow uh, a chain of, of, uh, of drama, a kind of story as it moves from part to whole, to, uh, or from event to climax, uh, to resolution. Uh, these are ways uh, in which the, the viewer uh, emotionally climbs into the world of the painting. Uh, and these clues, this, this, this ladder, as it were, of access is almost totally denied to the viewer. Uh, it's not utterly denied, but it's not evident. Instead, the viewer is thrown back upon himself. He's, he's confronted with paintings which are, uh, which are confrontational in nature, uh, which are uh, 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 intensely uh, 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 imbued with an imaging function, but with no image apparently uh, visible in them. Uh, the effect is appalling uh, to the viewer, uh, especially given the gigantic scale of these pictures uh, with, as I've said, no easy ladder of access to climb into them, uh, to follow them. Instead, the, the clues which permit the paintings to function uh, as graphic entities uh, are, uh, are located uh, very widely afield, uh, defying our ordinary expectations, and also involving discriminations which are at the very extreme limits of our powers of sensory uh, perception. Dark upon dark, for example. So the viewer is immediately confronted with a, with a, with a kind of, of bafflement, uh, indeed a kind of terrifying void. Uh, and there's a story, um, apocryphal perhaps, but revelatory, uh, about the, uh, the first viewers uh, of the chapel after it, uh, after it opened in, in 1971, who would walk out asking, where were the paintings? Well, the paintings are there, but, we, but you have to learn to see them. You have, you have to you adjust your experience, adjust your expectations, adjust your entire, your entire uh, sensorium and your entire mood, your, your, your entire attitude uh, toward experience as a whole uh, before you begin to perceive them. That happens over time. Now, The, painting, the paintings of the chapel went through three phases uh, in Rothko's mind. He worked for several years, three years, in fact, very intensely uh, on this project from, 19, uh, uh, fr from 1961 to, through 1964. Uh, and 
the three phases uh, are each very different one from the next. The first phase uh, is one that uh, uh, recapitulates Rothko's previous experiments with installation painting, uh, which took place uh, in, the, in the program for the, uh, for the Four Seasons restaurant in the Seagram building in New York City, and then later on uh, for the Society of Fellows uh, at, um, at, at Harvard. Now, that for the first of these three phases uh, did not, did not um, get very far. And in it, uh, Rothko essentially att attempted to, uh, to uh, convert uh, the pictorial format that he had invented uh, for those two earlier programs, uh, both of which ended, uh, ended uh, unsuccessfully. Uh, the, uh, one, one aborted uh, the Seagrams, and the other, uh, unfortunately, uh, uh, since destroyed at Harvard. Uh, uh, he utilized the format that he had uh, he had experienced uh, in these, and I'll show you a couple of examples uh, of it. Uh, th this is what you're looking at right now. Is a, is one of the very few surviving uh, traces of that uh, of of that first program. And you'll see in a minute that it's very close uh, to what he had been doing previously. Uh, in those two earlier architectural installation programs. Uh, and then we have a sketch, uh, uh, a pencil sketch, of a triptych, a triptych for the apse. And indeed, there would be, from the very first, uh, a triptych destined uh, to inhabit the apse of the chapel. And here you can see, in this drawing, a figuration that is related to what he employed uh, at, uh, at um, Seagram's and at Harvard, which I'll show you a few a few examples. Uh, here's one more painting, a problematic one, uh, which, which um, uh, may have been uh, destined like the one I showed you earlier for the chapel program, or, or may be a remnant uh, of the Seagram's program. Uh, it, it's unclear which, but I show it to you just for the sake of, uh, of, of, uh, of completion. And now to, uh, to backtrack just a little bit, uh, this is, a, this is a, a, a view of one of the rooms in the Tate Gallery in London uh, to, to which Rothko donated uh, an ensemble of paintings uh, from the Seagram program. There's another one uh, of this series. And here's a wall uh, of the Harvard series. Uh, you can see how close these are uh, with their uh, lateral extension uh, evoca evoking traditional mural programs uh, and uh, inhabited by a kind of architectonic imagery suggestive of, uh, of doors and windows and, and so on. Uh, and the whole would have had a kind of wraparound effect which might remind us, uh, for example, of Monet's great water lily series at the Orangerie in Paris. Now, Roscoe, as I said, uh, didn't pursue this vein very long. He soon realized it was, uh, it was not what he wanted because it sacrificed the, uh, uh, the anthropomorphic uh, erectness uh, and the physical discreteness of separation, uh, which uh, was built in to his 
his fundamental uh, choices uh, in painting and into the format that he had used for so many years, the, the, that, of, that of, the, of the closed individual uh, uh, shape. Uh, we know it's anthropomorphic uh, because we have drawings uh, in which that elongated form and the stacked, uh, I shouldn't say stacked, it's a bad term, uh, these superimposed layers of rectangles uh, that it contains are, are, are ev evocations of the human being, the, human, the erect human form on the one hand, and uh, in their horizontal dimension of the spread of landscape beyond the human figure in the other. Uh, now, our understanding of the second program uh, is complicated by the fact that Rothko, uh, uh, when he sent the, the, the paintings for the chapel uh, in 1967, even though the building was not yet ready for them, uh, he sent a total of 18 panels, of which only 14 were to be utilized in the final installation. The four extras, or spares as they were called, uh, were remnants of that set now discarded second phase. Uh, what he didn't send were two more such panels, uh, which he withheld. Uh, and this caused a considerable degree of misunderstanding uh, about the uh, nature of that second phase. And they contributed to my own misrepresentation of it in my book. So the account of it that I'm presenting now is quite different from what you'll find in the book. And I hope to correct this at the earliest opportunity in print uh, to make up for my, uh, my error of, uh, of uh, a quarter century ago. This is, this is the real story. But, uh, but first I'll show you uh, those, those three, the A pair, as, as they're called, the B, and then the C the C were the final two that were not part of that, uh, of that, uh, uh, that 18 series uh, uh, sequence. Uh, we think uh, that Rothko sent 18 uh, paintings, uh, 18 panels, uh, because he wanted uh, to evoke the number 18, uh, which in Jewish numerology, uh, ev evokes the word high or life. It's a good luck number. A lucky number. His friend Barney Newman did this all the time in his shows. Uh, that's the second one, the B. Uh, they differ. Uh, the A and B are similar in external dimensions. Uh, they differ in the size of the black rectangles. B, it comes down lower than A. And then C. Uh, which is wider than the uh, other two, the other two pairs, uh, and which is destined ultimately for the, uh, the, uh, the side walls, the long side walls of the chapel, while the, uh, the A and B pairs are destined for the, the angle walls, the four angle walls, which are occupied by the monochromes, the large monochromes now. Whether A and B were, uh, were whether A was at the front, uh, or, and be at the back or the other way around uh, uh, is still uh, uh, arguable. Uh, I myself think that, that, uh, that A was at the south end and B the north end around the, uh, around the abstriptic, but uh, you could argue the other way. 
That's still to be determined. And that's six walls. And the seventh wall is occupied by, the, by this panel you've seen before that still remains on the south wall, the entrance wall of the chapel, with the largest of all of its black panels hanging ominously, like a, car, a kind of sort of Damocles uh, 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 above, uh, uh, above the rather, rather narrow shelf uh, of red ground uh, that lies beneath it. Uh, sort of Damocles or guillotine blade. Uh, Rothko uh, compared uh, uh, the relationship of entrance wall panel to apse triptych uh, to that between the, um, the Last Judgment uh, on the uh, church in the island of Torcello in the, uh, in the Venetian island, uh, the Venetian lagoon, I should say, uh, with the image of the Madonna and child in the uh, half cupola uh, in the apse. That tension between the two, which he was trying to recapture here uh, in the uh, octagon of the chapel. And there's the triptych, uh, as, as, as you see it now, surrounded by the angle wall panels. Now, what Roscoe had done in the, uh, the scheme for the, uh, for the um, Second for the, for the second program uh, was to invent two new pictorial types: uh, the monochrome uh, and the geometrically exact uh, and and uh, evenly smooth surfaced uh, black figure panels. Neither of them had pre-existed in his work uh, to date, uh, and and neither would be employed after uh, their use in the chapel. And what you're looking at now are digital reconstructions uh, of, that, uh, of that second scheme. Uh, and what you have is uh, a series of seven, several, I should say seven walls, uh, which form a ring uh, around the, the main body of the octagon, each of which is occupied by a single tall uh, erect panel with a wide wall space around it, uh, forming collectively a kind of, uh, of uh, it's been called a Stonehenge, as if these are solitary menhirs, forming a kind of, uh, of ritual circle, uh, uh, ominous and dramatic. There we are looking toward the entrance wall. And here, one of the side walls. Rothko abandoned this scheme as well. Uh, uh, but what he had done here was to segregate two elements, heavily freighted iconographically, uh, 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 and, and here, uh, uh, in the second scheme, which you see in plan uh, over on the, uh, on the, uh, the left hand, uh, uh, to oppose them as drastically as possible one to another. Uh, the monochrome triptych uh, with its air of transcendence set back in the apse uh, and the 
the seven uh, black figure panels uh, where they're intensely anthropomorphic uh, 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 reference, uh, which uh, stand for the relative plane of human existence against the, uh, the, um, uh, the unlimited nature of the divine. These are rigidly segregated uh, in the second plan. Uh, in the third plan, what Rothko does uh, is to integrate these two elements. Uh, he creates six new paintings uh, of three types, or I should say of two types, rather. One great big uh, of, of single-panel monochromes, which occupy the four-angle walls, and two black-figured triptychs uh, on the side walls. Uh, that's as you see it here. And in doing this, uh, he achieves a unification of the, uh, of the ambitions that he had entertained in the first and the second programs. That is, he both has the separateness uh, and the confrontational quality of the single panel, whether it's a panel in isolation or three panels adjoining one another, but each a discrete physical unit. Uh, uh, and at the same time, uh, that continuous uh, surround effect that he had aimed at in the first stage. Uh, and, uh, and this is achieved by the greater width of the, uh, of, the, of the angle wall panels instead of the narrower black figures that had occupied them previously, and by the side wall triptychs, which, which are ex extended laterally far more uh, than, uh, than any other preceding components uh, painted for the chapel, and which, and which complete that, um, that, uh, that transverse motion that takes you around the circuit. Uh, there's a view of the, uh, of, of the, of the abstriptic with its sidewall panels, and you see how what he has done is to expand the domain of the monochromes. We can call it the, the domain of the divine into the space of the, uh, of the full space of the chapel, where it, inter where it interacts and, 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 and is inseparable from uh, the black figure paintings, which with their contest of forms, uh, with, with their interior conflict, stand for the relative dimension of human existence. And there's, there's a view uh, of, the, of the entrance wall panel surrounded by its pair of black figure panels. So they form a kind of drumbeat or continuous background against which the drama of human existence uh, with all of its contradictions and all of its sufferings is played out. Uh, most dramatically, of course, uh, in, the, in, in the dire form of the entrance wall panel itself. Now, a central role in all, in all of this is played by the, by the sidewall triptychs, which are newly invented uh, for this purpose, and which not merely form a, 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 a horizontal continuum of, uh, of uh, a very, um, very forceful uh, uh, drive, but moreover, uh, 
exemplify uh, more, than, more than any other panel uh, the struggle uh, of human existence, as well as a hint uh, of, the, uh, of the opening toward the divine that the monochromes embody. And they do this uh, in large part uh, because of the raising of the centers. Uh, the, centers are, the centers are lifted uh, for, uh, as against the sides. Uh, and uh, aside from evoking perhaps the form of the cross, uh, and the suffering that, uh, that is, uh, that is uh, uh, contingent uh, with it. They also uh, embody a, a tectonic struggle, which is absent from uh, a, sen a sense of physical weight and substance, which is absent from, uh, from all other uh, elements in the chapel pr program, in this third program, uh, and which stand for the, the, uh, the, uh, the struggle uh, and the incompleteness, uh, the, the unfinishedness uh, of human existence. At the same time, of course, as triptychs, they refer back to the abstriptych. Uh, and, uh, and since their black uh, centers here occupy far more space, uh, almost, all, almost, almost, almost all the surface uh, of the three panels that, that constitute them, they will remind you uh, of the monochrome uh, panels uh, that constitute the apse triptych. So uh, in an strange way, uh, the, uh, the sidewall triptychs uh, have a double nature. They refer both to the monochrome world uh, and, to the, uh, uh, and to the black figure world uh, uh, as well. Now the two triptychs are, are different in a significant way. Uh, one uh, has a, a narrower and the other wider framing bands of red around their black centers. And this uh, gives them, uh, architectonically speaking, uh, quite a different air. Uh, one of them seems solider than the other, stronger than the other, uh, uh, the other weaker, more spindly. Now, the way they, they are installed at present uh, does not correspond to the way uh, uh, Rothko uh, uh, described uh, in, in, in a measured drawing of uh, how they were to be hung. They were not intended to be hung uh, identically to one another. Uh, rather, one uh, was intended to, be, to have its, its central panel higher by an inch and a quarter uh, than the other. Uh, and, the, and the higher one is the one with the thinner uh, framing bands, the one that needs uh, the added uh, effect of tectonic struggle that's imparted to it by the lift as against its heavier and more solid counterpart. Uh, and this introduces uh, an asymmetry between the two, uh, uh, which is the suppression of which, I believe, was the, uh, was the motive for uh, hanging them as they are presently hung at this, with the center at the same height above its, uh, uh, above its flanks in the two cases. Uh, but what Rothko is doing is underlining uh, through that differential of the triptychs uh, a key issue in his, uh, in his structuring of the third program as a whole. 
because what Rothko does is to separate uh, uh, his 14 panels, that, uh, uh, which occupy eight pictorial groups, into two moieties, two halves, of seven black figure and seven monochrome panels, which are organized respectively uh, into uh, two groups of five and three. There are five triptychs versus, I'm sorry, five angle panels, single panels, versus three triptychs, uh, and, f and five monochromes versus three black figure compositions. But they uh, don't match each other, they cross-cut each other uh, so as to, uh, as to set loose a whole elaborate network of, of relationships, both visual and conceptual, which it would take far too long to try to describe here. You can refer to a, a, a lengthy discussion of them uh, in my book for those uh, sufficiently interested. But what they, uh, uh, what they do is, is set in motion this uh, intricate series of links uh, uh, which which run completely through the um, the um, the body uh, of this uh, of this third system, uh, and uh, and which depend upon the uh, 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 for their for their separation against each other, which depend upon the isolation of two factors: one of of composition, internal composition; the other of external configuration. Uh, for example, one against three panels. And it's these factors uh, which are highlighted now uh, in exemplary case in the two triptychs uh, uh, because here you see uh, the play of, of differentiated uh, configuration against differentiated composition, mutually compensating one for the other and producing a satisfactory final effect uh, in both, assuming that is that each was hung as I believe Rothko intended. Well, that's going to do it uh, for now. There's far more to be said, but I'll leave you on that note uh, and pass you back to uh, to Christopher for some uh, concluding remarks. Uh, I think this is the first time that we have seen this uh, second version, this uh uh, this previous iteration of the chapel that my father was thinking through so actively. I think it's the first time we've either seen it presented graphically or in a, in a scholarly presentation. So it's really uh, just an incredible, I think, eye-opening um, treat for, for the audience to sort of think through with you and with my father as he tries to come up for the ultimate pictorial and I think on some level theological solution to what he's trying to present in the chapel. Uh, one thing I will add that I, that I don't think you mentioned to the audience is that um, my, my father actually dies in between when he finishes the paintings and the architectural plans for the, for the chapel and when it's actually installed. So some of this will always remain a mystery, but I think you have come up with a, really a, an incredibly compelling case for how, how this came about and how it evolved and, and really um, some of the pieces that are involved in that, that jump from that second phase to what we have today, the chapel that we have all come to know. Um, I want to invite, uh, I want to invite uh, all the viewers as we move into the question answer phase to send their questions to programs at rothkochapel.org and we will see your questions and we'll bring them um, up in conversation. And uh, anyway, we look forward to hearing what uh, our viewers uh, would like to ask uh, Dr. Nodelman.
Um, let me uh, let me begin with a uh, with uh, a first question. Um, one of our one of our viewers noted that uh, you had a background in uh, classical art and architecture, and they're wondering how that informed your both your interest in the Rothko Chapel and maybe maybe some of your understanding of how the Rothko Chapel uh, Rothko Chapel works. Uh, well, it affects it affects these uh, uh, these uh, views of mine um, quite profoundly. In part because of the um, the uh, uh, immense distance which separates the art of the classical world from that of the 20th century, and the um, the requirement um, to expand your conceptual framework uh, in such a way that uh, you can think about the two of them uh, in uh, in relation to one another, and that expands the terrain, uh, the the, um, the the field of play. Uh, for thought, because works of art um, operate to a very important degree, not only by what they make us notice about themselves, but also by what they conceal. Uh, uh, every image is like an iceberg with uh, seven-eighths of it or so uh, behind the surface, uh, aspects that they don't want you to see or think about, uh, by, by which they produce their magic. And by looking at, at or thinking about works that are profoundly different, um, the contrast forces you to think about the dimensions of each which are being concealed, different ones in, in each case. Uh, uh, but also, uh, there's something about the, um, the layout of the chapel itself, as we, as we have it in its, uh, its third scheme, uh, which has a, um, a kind of architectonic magnificence uh, and scale uh, which remind me very much uh, of the classical scale of the Greek temple, for example, which is not scaled to the to the human body, but which is scheduled scheduled to itself, scaled to a to a self-sufficient order that's beyond the human body, which we experience only uh, by imaginatively magnifying ourselves uh, to the point of uh, of um, of being equal to it. The experience of classical architecture, when you, when you, for example, walk into the Pantheon in Rome, uh, that, that great orb of space, and feel lifted up uh, to conform to, uh, to its own center and its own dimensions, and feel far greater than you are um, uh, by, that, by that, um, that imaginative transposition is something that you experience also uh, in the Rothko Chapel. First, the experience of bafflement, of, of being repelled uh, by something that's too large for you and does not admit you. And then uh, uh, afterward, a sense of being taken up into it and expanded beyond, uh, beyond your own physical scale, but also beyond your scale of comprehension beyond what you thought you could notice, and beyond what you thought you could experience. Uh, so that's, um, that's a profound connection. I, I, I certainly share your experience of, of walking into the Pantheon and realizing that the scale is no, no longer a human scale, that you are dealing with something that is uh, beyond, beyond uh, sort of a terrestrial existence, or you're being invited into a space like that. 
Um, you know, I'm reminded as you talk about this that my father was asked once why he painted such large paintings. And he, he went on to say that, uh, in fact, he painted them because he wanted to be intimate, that when you are looking at a large painting, uh, by definition, you are, are essentially inside it. There's no way to see beyond its bounds. And I'm, I'm wondering if it's some of that effect that he actually gets to fully realize in a space like the chapel. Well, I, I would uh, respond with another anecdote about your father, uh, which, uh, which um, uh, is when he was, uh, he was asked uh, on the occasion of his trip to uh, Italy and Sicily uh, 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 to, to look at some of those Greek temples, uh, asked whether, he, whether uh, he wanted to paint them. And he said, I've been painting Greek temples uh, without knowing it. Yeah, so, it's, so it seems like there's really a, sort of a, a, an interplay or push-pull between this uh, scale of, that is aspiring to the divine that he's taking perhaps some classical examples and this wish to be particularly human and, and meet people on that sort of in, intimate level. Uh, and I think you, you talked a little bit about that, that piece that the, the viewer need, is essentially demanded to bring to the encounter at the Rothko Chapel. So despite the uh, sort of scale of the works, uh, it's still speaking very much a, a human language. Well, the amazing thing is that it's both. That's a hard Absolutely. thing to manage. <laughs> <laughs> do, do you think he always gets away with it? Well, he said himself that it was, uh, it was um, his supreme achievement in which he'd surpassed anything he had been capable of before. And, uh, and he was right. Well, I, I, have, I think I have come to appreciate that the chapel, which I once thought was something that was perhaps an exception in his work, is actually was his opportunity, given uh, this uh, really remarkable commission where he had essentially complete control over at least the interior of the chapel. Uh, it was his opportunity to actually fully realize his aims for the, the picture-viewer interaction that he had been not only trying to paint, but had been writing about from the beginning of his career. Uh, and this was his opportunity to really fine tune that and, and bring it to its, its most sort of perfect uh, reduction. I think that's exactly what happened. And um, uh, one of the avenues by which it happened, uh, which, is, um, which is fascinating to, um, to look at, uh, is uh, the way in which he systematically enforced his vision of the architecture of the building upon a very reluctant Philip Johnson. You can see that in a whole series of, uh, of, of, of Johnson draw project drawings, which he submitted to Rothko, and Rothko drawing over them and changing them step by step from something totally different uh, in its original form to what we have today. Uh, it's a, it's a, a battle of wills between these two very strong-willed men in which Rothko wins. Yes, he does. And I will actually say that, that Johnson uh, was really ultimately rather flexible in acceding to my father's demands until we got to that, uh, uh, until now, very problematic natural light source, which has, I think, uh, for, for any of you who have not been to the, the recently restored Rothko Chapel, it's now been um, 
rendered uh, in, in a much more satisfactory way that really allows uh, natural light into the room in a way that is gentle and caressing to the paintings and illuminates the space in a, in a much more even and welcoming way. Uh, oh, the light is greatly improved by the revision. Well, it, 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 it pleases me very much to hear that from, from, from your lips because uh, as previously noted, you have uh, looked harder at that, at that room than I think anyone. So um, we actually have a question that I think picks up a little bit on our conversation here. Uh, one of our audience members is asking if you could say more about the influence of the Torcello Chapel on the design uh, and its significance for the Rothko Chapel. Well, I refer to that somewhat in my talk. Um, Rothko visited Torcello in the lagoon of, uh, of Venice, a very evocative island uh, in itself, uh, and the basilica, uh, uh, which, uh, uh, which is decorated uh, with Byzantine mosaics uh, on its interior uh, uh, with, a, with a dominant axis, a dominant long axis, occupied at one extreme by the Last Judgment, uh, by a... By a uh, a fresco, a, a mosaic, I should say, uh, of the terrors of the Last Judgment, and the other by the redemptive vision uh, of the uh, of the Virgin and Child uh, in the apse against a against a starry sky, gold against a starry sky, and it was it was that that um, axial tension that he wanted to capture in the chapel, and I think succeeded in doing between the, the entrance wall panel with its, uh, with its dire uh, guillotine blade uh, and, the, uh, and the glowing uh, uh, triptych in the apse. A, a, a glow, by the way, which is somewhat dimmed over the years. Uh, originally, uh, it had a slightly lighter and more roseate tinge, uh, which has darkened uh, over the course of the last, uh, the last um, uh, half century but still uh, a tremendously effective tension uh, is, is constructed between these. It's the spine, the spine of the chapel, uh, and it's, um, and it's, it's, answered, it's, it's answered uh, now by the, uh, the two powerful sidewall triptychs which, are, which, are, uh, uh, which, which validate the cross axis in a way that would not have been true before. And I note that you call them the spine, and those that uh, that uh, central north apse triptych and the south wall painting are, of course, the two elements that don't change that are there from, as far as we understand, from the the initial, at least from that second uh, second iteration of the thinking for the chapel, uh, and they seem to be that that as you call it, spine, that that structure around which everything else is built. Uh, here they're conjoined. Mm -hmm. Yeah, maybe yeah, one body. Well, you're saying they yeah. were there not. Uh, so we have a, a question from another another viewer <clears throat> who is asking about um, uh, do, whether we see any relation between Rothko's sense of structure in his art and the sense of structure in the music he liked. And um, this is actually something that I've I've uh, written about before. And I will just note for the audience that the music he liked was uh, he was a, a huge fan of, of classical music uh, and very much of the classical period. Uh, particularly Mozart, also Haydn, Beethoven, Schubert, but uh, really he kept coming back to Mozart more than anything. So, uh, Sheldon, I would love to hear, I've, I've talked about this before, but I'd love to hear your thoughts. If you, I know you are also a great music lover. Um, if you have thoughts about Rothko's structure and, uh, and structure in, in classical composition. Uh, 
Well, actually, Morton Feldman has written about this uh, very, uh, very perceptively. Uh, uh, Feldman, who, of course, was a, a close friend uh, of, of Rothko's, and, uh, uh, and uh, talked about the, um, the, um, the way in which, uh, in which uh, uh, sensation was layered uh, in, in Rothko paintings in a way in which he had attempted to incorporate also uh, in his music. And I would say also, although I, he didn't mention this, the important role of silence in Rothko's music, uh, so that the, um, the, the sound events are, acquire the meaning that they do uh, precisely because of the way they're positioned in fields of silence. Uh, and that's certainly true uh, in, uh, here in the chapel, where the relationship of the, of the, the eight paintings, or eight pictorial units, to the walls they occupy uh, is of extreme significance. Uh, and the, uh, not only the, the reciprocal patterning of the shape of the painting and the wall, but also the intervallic relationships between these eight successive units uh, 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 within the wall spaces that separate them. Yes, and you, the, I, clearly the, the paintings were designed for the size of the walls, and the walls were designed for the size of the paintings. And it is a little bit like uh, like music, where notes don't make sense in of themselves; They're, they make sense in the context of the of the pauses around them, and then the notes that follow. So you have that sort of rhythmic structure of of music that happens as you as you process around the chapel. No, exactly, and that's fully realized only in the third and conclusive program. Uh, I will, I will uh, add that um, uh, as far as Mozart goes, I actually I had the pleasure of listening to a performance uh, today, a, a, a live taped performance of uh, Mozart's uh, late divertimento trio. And uh, I, I was struck anew by Mozart, Mozart's incredible economy of means, how he uh, makes such a, a, you know, a beautifully rich tapestry from, in this case, just three instruments, really just a few voices, very short phrases. Uh, and I, I do think you can see a parallel in, in my father's means to create something that is incredibly evocative, that is full of emotion, but is often built up from very, very simple, um, very, very simple um, uh, pieces. And, um, and, uh, and you certainly see this in the Rothko Chapel where he has is, he is reduced color to uh, uh, almost a bare minimum. And yet he is still able to create a composition just from these, uh, these small, these, these simple elements uh, that uh, is more than the sum of its parts. I'm very struck by the analogy that you uh, that you proposed because uh, 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 I had to write about that piece once, uh, and I think the uh, I think the the analogy is uh, is very apt indeed. Uh, the uh, the uh, the stripped down almost skeletal spareness uh, of uh, of that of that trio uh, and the uh, the the elucid the, the the evocation of a maximum of content from a minimum of means uh, is uh, is truly amazing it's a very late work uh, yes, and, it is. Uh, it's... and a, a kind of uh, i describe it as as the um, as the kind of the ghost of the vermento yes uh, hardly a vermento at all Incredi yeah. actually an incredibly serious deep piece of music but uh, Indeed. Uh, it's, and it's a one off it really doesn't have a precedent before it and and uh, it's not really until Beethoven that we see that that even medium developed. So, um, yeah, I, 
Uh, I, I actually had not, I had not connected that piece specifically to my father before, but it was, it, it struck me that I, I did not feel like I was listening to three strings. I felt like I was listening to a huge orchestra. That's, that's what he can create from such, such simple means. And again, uh, my father at his best, I think, can, can um, create a, sim a similar uh, sense of something, a rich tapestry from something uh, quite simple. Oh, I can't think of a better analogy. <laughs> Uh, I, I have a question for you. Um, you you had uh, mentioned just briefly at the beginning of your talk the, the temporal element in the chapel, which is um, I, I think a lot about time, particularly in my father's late works. And, I, and I'm curious how you see time working in the chapel. And, and I'll, I'll sort of pose that in two different ways. So is time, looking at a Rothko painting in a Rothko panel in the chapel, is the time element different than if you were to see these in a museum? And at the same time, uh, you're in the Rothko Chapel. Is the time element in the Rothko Chapel different than it is in in, in another chapel? For instance, for a Torcello, just for example. Uh, well, I think it is, uh, and one uh, one dimension of this uh, is in the kind of demand that the viewing uh, of the chapel paintings makes upon the viewer. Uh, uh, first of all, it, it it they do not reveal themselves immediately. Uh, in fact, initially, they're very, they're very resistant. Uh, it, it takes uh, continuous attention. They reveal themselves over time as the viewer's attitude changes. Uh, a, a, a psychic modification is required of the viewer in order to see the paintings. Uh, and in this sense, that the, the, the viewing experience is temporarily distended. And another yeah, sense, and I will add, there's even a physical component to that that we learned about as we worked on the on the lighting for the Rothko Chapel. That there's it actually takes fully if you walk out of the bright sunshine into the Rothko Chapel, it can take up to 30 minutes for your eyes to fully adjust to the changes in light level, even with the improved lighting. Um, it, it, you're really entering a different space. So there's first a, a physical adjustment, there's an emotional adjustment, and then as you are indicating, there's really a whole. Uh, adjustment in terms of how we view and how we interact with with space and and color and and light and uh, movement and the other the other aspect which i alluded to briefly uh, before uh, is uh, is the the uh, realm of memory and expectation as you move around the chapel can you, elicit, uh, can you be elucid, uh, can you uh, expand on that just a little bit more? Well, it's an experience of, um, of losing and finding. Uh, you relinquish uh, a work uh, to move on to the next, and you're, you're, uh, there's a demand that you do so. You can't just stand there. You have to move. Uh, the solicitations of your peripheral view uh, require it. Uh, and and as, and, and as you do, as you move around the circuit, you return to where you came from. First of all, you, return, you come back to what is like. For example, you have four uh, uh, monochrome angle wall paintings that apparently repeat one another, but, but in which the experience of one and the next is never the same because the light is gonna be different it's going to be coming from a different angle. 
and because your own experience has been conditioned by what you've seen in between, so that the attempt to determine, for example, I, I went through this over and over, a kind of, uh, of, of trial of my own, uh, my own capacities, to try to determine whether, in fact, uh, the, they were painted in exactly the same colors. And you can't do it because no two encounters uh, of, of these panels is alike. You go round and round trying to stabilize your, 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 your concept of what you're seeing and you can't do it. It's continuously elusive. Uh, so uh, you both return home and discover you can't go home again. Both. <laughs> Yes, and, and I've, I've certainly had people remark that every time that they come to the chapel, it's a different experience, and it's a different experience because the lighting is different, it may be because of the time of day, it may be because of the time of year, but as much as anything, it has to do with changes in themselves. And so even in this procession that you're talking about, we're seeing actual physical changes in light, we're seeing differences within the chapel based on what time of day it is and which side is being illuminated. But you've also, you've already been influenced by your interaction with, with the previous couple of walls and you're already having a different kind of interaction than you were, um, you know, 10 minutes before looking at the north, maybe the north triptych and now you're looking at the southwest wall panel. It's, you, you've, you have already changed. You know, there's an outer light, but there's also an inner light. Uh, and they're both fundamental components of the experience. And I think ultimately the inner light is perhaps the more, the more dominant, the more important. And I think it's, what the, it's the awakening of that inner light that is what the installation is about. It's a kind of a, of a, of a, of a technology uh, for the modification of the soul, if you want to think of it that way. I love the idea of uh, these these enormous uh, panels as technology, but I guess they were uh, uh, a different type of activating technology of, of their time. And, and our time, I would like to believe. Yes. Yeah. I failed to mention one thing in the course of my uh, exposition before, actually lots of things, but one very important thing, uh, which is worth keeping in mind as a kind of a, uh, a kind of a, um, uh, of, of an indicator uh, of, of, what, uh, of how the entire installation operates and, and what's at stake in its construction. And it comes down to the entrance wall panel, the south wall panel, which plays such a central role in, in the, uh, in the um, articulation of the entire scheme. And um, what I didn't realize until years later uh, uh, and through the, through the discovery of a measured drawing, which I hadn't known when I wrote about the, uh, the chapel, that the great black rectangle that inhabits it and is such a dramatic constituent uh, of its, uh, its storyline is off-centered by an eighth of an inch, an eighth of an inch in this gigantic panel. Uh, something that you will never recognize spontaneously just by looking at it. You have to look at the measurements uh, to, to see that it's the case, that it's planned to be the case. But what that does on a subliminal level is kick the viewer from left to right 
and, and start the rotational motion around the, the ring uh, of, of, of the chapel paintings. Uh, that is the, at, the, um, at the core uh, of the viewer's experience. Uh, and this tremendously slight subliminal uh, uh, alteration uh, is, uh, is enough to produce an immense effect. The slightness of the, uh, of the cause and the immensity of the effect are, uh, are uh, clues to the way of thinking about the chapel installation as a whole, uh, where uh, one, one is dealing with, um, with um, uh, the, the, the most, um, the most um, uh, almost inaccessible levels of perceptual discrimination, which have the most immense consequences when one sensitizes oneself to them. So that's a kind of a cautionary so tale. <laughs> So this eighth of an inch is, in fact, uh, sort of uh, attuning you to the level of, of, um, of discernment that you need to really uh, fully get inside how these paintings operate. Uh, and that's why I think also the, um, the, uh, the, uh, the correspondence in, uh, in the differences in, uh, in, uh, in composition and uh, of individual panels and in the, the um, placement of the center panel in those two triptychs, the way in which each, is, each of these adjustments uh, is complementary to the other and makes the two triptychs uh, collectively a kind of a demonstration of how you're supposed to think about the, the chapel ensemble as a whole uh, is, uh, is, is a kind of, um, of, 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 of clue the functioning of the entire system. Uh, and we know that, the, uh, that the, uh, those triptychs were the last, uh, the last of, the, of the, the components of the chapel to be, to be accomplished. And the ones over which Rothko labored the longest. Uh, so uh, in a way, he was uh, providing us with a, a skeleton key there, if we have uh, uh, the eyes to see it. Uh, of what of what is in fact going on throughout the ensemble. We have time for just uh, one more question, and I just uh, want to return to something that uh, you you spoke about. We have on the one hand these this sort of near void uh, that this uh, this sort of empty holy of holies that you suggested the uh, the erased graven image, and you also have my father who said there is no such thing as good painting about nothing. So how do we how do we um, how do we resolve this tension between an apparent nothingness and my father's insistence that there always needs to be somethingness, if you will? Well, the something is very much there, but it's the something that, that, that exists at the, um, at the outer limits of the self, when one might put it, uh, and that you, uh, and that you, um, you gain access to by giving up the, uh, the um, contingent uh, uh, elements of the self that blind you to a vision of transcendence. Hmm. That's, that's, so that, that's actually a, a sort of a process. It sounds like this is almost a religious process, a, a giving up of elements of self in order to, uh, to move on to something more, to something essentially transcendent. I think that is what is going on in the chapel. I think that's what it was intended to happen here. I, I, I think that's absolutely right. And I, I will, um, 
I will add that I think the chapel makes absolutely explicit that um, something that all paint is it's actually always been true in paintings, which is that a painting is not complete in and of itself. It's only completed by the interaction with the viewer. Well, the chapel makes it absolutely explicit where my father gives you only the most basic signposts and, and, and keys, as you mentioned, to uh, a sense of interpretation and sense of meaning. And you have to be such an active participant in, in making that that somethingness come come into being. And again, I think that's always been true with art, but but in the chapel, it, it's taken to its almost an, to an almost unbearable degree. To an unbearable degree, I think is well put. Well, I hope that, that uh, despite that we are in uh, the uh, the realm of the almost unbearable, I, I hope everyone has enjoyed um, your your presentation as as much as as I certainly have. I want to thank you um, so much, Sheldon, for sharing your your thoughts with us tonight. The the older thoughts and the brand new thoughts. Uh, it's it's fascinating to know that uh, uh, you know thirty odd years on, you are still actively engaged with the. Uh, with the questions of the Rothko Chapel and how and how it works. So th thank you again for joining us, coming to Houston and, and giving this talk from the chapel where it, it, it's honestly so much more meaningful. Uh, I, uh, I just want to thank uh, all of our viewers for uh, joining us this evening. And I want to invite you um, to come and see the chapel. If you haven't been to the chapel, especially the, the newly restored chapel, it's it really, um, uh, it's it's a different experience, and as as uh, Dr. Nodelman noted uh, several times tonight, it, it, it's an experience that's constantly changing. So, if you think you know the chapel, uh, then you then you haven't been there in a while because it it changes every time you go, uh, and it really uh, it's it's a rewarding experience on so many different levels. Um, I want to also tell you about a little bit of uh, up, uh, upcoming um, uh, programming this summer. Um, we will be uh, presenting uh, a lecture series that will lead up to our fall symposium uh, that explores uh, the state of civil rights in the United States today. Uh, and that lecture series be begins on July 22nd with Reverend Barber, who is uh, the president and senior lecturer uh, at Repairers of the Breach and also co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral re revival. So uh, information about that program and, and other chapel programs and information on visiting the chapel can all be found on the chapel website, uh, visit rothkochapel.org. Thank you again for uh, joining us. Uh, I look forward to seeing you uh, at the chapel and at future programs. Thank you again, uh, Sheldon Nodelman, for sharing your thoughts. And uh, we're going to say good night. Thank you, Christopher. Thank you.